Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. A lot of these positive influences in my life, when I knew that I was in such a dark place, I just turned away from all of them. And I only hung out with the people that basically would not care about my habits. And so like, you know, I remember at that time, like I stopped answering the calls of people who like I did great things with during high school or even like in college, or I would just ignore, like ignore their calls. And I would just be sort of wallowing in this like set of patterns that I was reinforcing, but also getting so sick of at the same time. But yeah, I felt like I had just wasted a massive opportunity. And when I was there that that day, like I felt like I was dying. Luckily I didn't, I didn't die. I, I remember just thinking like, I, I want a second chance. Hi friends, and welcome back to another episode of At the End of the Tunnel. Today I'm in conversation with an Ecuadorian American named Diego Perez. And if that name doesn't ring a bell, it's probably because you're more familiar with his Instagram handle, which is Young Pueblo. Since 2014, Perez has been posting his poetry on Instagram under the name Young Pueblo, which is Spanish for young people, in an effort to help his followers find more individual peace and thereby contributing to more world peace. I first met Diego a few years ago after his book Inward was released, which was his first book. And he was touring through Los Angeles and he graciously accepted an invitation to share some of his poetry live at one of my shine events. However, I didn't know the backstory of how his poetry went viral on Instagram. And as you know, I'm obsessed with backstories. So I had to have him on the podcast to find out how a guy with something like 30 followers on Instagram amasses nearly a million followers just from posting poetry. What was that like behind the scenes? Where did the ideas come from? I wanted to know all of the other in-between moments and obstacles that somebody would have to navigate in order to have as remarkable of an impact as Diego has had in the world. So it wasn't surprising to discover that Diego didn't just wake up one day and decide to start writing poetry. Instead, he actually woke up on the floor after an all-night drug binge with his heart racing out of control thinking he was going to die. And that was the moment he realized that something had to change. And that led him to an unlikely trip to a 10-day silent meditation retreat, which of course he wanted to escape from after a couple of days. And then he forced himself to power through. And then he started a daily meditation practice. And that led to the idea of writing poems and posting them online. It was a great story. And I really can't wait for you to hear it. So... Without further ado, let's bring on Mr. Diego Perez, a.k.a. Young Pueblo. 
All right. So thank you very much for uh, coming on to the podcast, Diego. I usually like to start these conversations by talking about childhood. And I know you grew up in Guayaquil, Ecuador. Yep, that's right. <laughs> and I'm just curious, back in, in your childhood, what was your favorite toy or activity, if you can remember? Well, especially when I was in Guayaquil, I so I came to the United States when I was about four years old, so my memories are pretty faint. But I remember this. There's one particular pretty bright memory of when I was outside in the front of the house and I remember it was a toy, it was like a, a toy car that I could, you know, it had springs and you could roll back and then it'll roll forward. And I have this really vivid memory of like playing with it for a while. And then I actually think I rolled it really far back and it might have even gone so far forward ahead of me that it went into the street. I don't think I went into the street or anything like that. But that's the one of the pretty sharpest memories I, ha I have from my childhood. Do you remember what you enjoyed about the toy? Not exactly, no. I mean, the memory is pretty faint. I think from there, because the, the the sharp break of, you know, being in Ecuador and then coming to the United States and just like, you know, basically moving to a whole new world, like my my memories are most fond here, like after that moment, but that's the earliest one. What was your favorite activity or toy in the States when you moved? Oh, in the States. I mean, then I had, I had a few. I remember I had this little set of um, eight action figures. And I think one of my favorite toys was this gray and red Iron Man that uh, had, it was missing part of one of its arms. And I just remember playing with it for hours behind this couch. And I would just have the most imaginative sessions of this like superhero kind of just flying through the galaxy and getting into like all these like little battles and just really going deep into these stories in my mind. And, um, of these like galactic wars and all of that. And I just had a blast hanging out behind the couch by myself. <laughs> Were you an only child? No, no. I, had, I have an older brother and a little sister. But the reason why I spend a lot of time playing with myself is that my, my brother is five years older than me. So we would play together sometimes. But there was also a pretty significant age gap. You know, when I was like 10, he's like 15. And then I have a little sister who was born when I was 10 years old. So you know, I'm one of three in the middle, but I definitely ended up spending a lot of time with myself. Where did you guys move to when you moved to the States? We went to Boston, Massachusetts. Initially, we were supposed to move to New York City and we spent about two weeks there. And my mom was like, hell no, we got to get out of here. And we, and we ended up moving to Boston. Talk a little bit about your family dynamic growing up in terms of, you know, was it a happy childhood? Was it challenging? Were your parents around? They influential in your life? Massively influential. I mean, I had I had really fabulous parents and I had a you know, pretty good relationship with my brother. I think there was always that age gap there where, you know, we're on the same page, but we ended up, you know, in the same household just like living our own lives because we were just, you know, there was a, a gap there. But my childhood was generally just it was it was happy, positive, but there was definitely a massive struggle, and that was the struggle of poverty. So when we moved to the United States, you know, when I think back in my life and I think, you know, what's the particular trauma that, that I carry that really formed my identity and my conditioning, it's really just the experience of poverty. I think in the United States, we don't quite understand how, how influential that could be in your life and in your present and future. 
But for my family, I remember there were a lot of times where, you know, my parents would be fighting because they were under so much pressure to make ends meet. So my mother, she worked cleaning houses and my father worked in a grocery store. And, you know, we lived in a very, very simple, small apartment with two bedrooms and it was five of us. And it was difficult, man. It was just like, you know, we always had enough to eat, but I definitely remember times where I was like still hungry, but there weren't enough like pork chops to go around. You know, we could each only have one or there was just like, there were just absolutely no luxuries. Like growing up, it was just a simple life. And my parents over time, they weren't really able to get out of that poverty trap that America has. And, you know, they ended up just like, Incruing a lot of debt. And the big moment of relief ended up coming later when my brother and I, as teenagers, started working. Were you guys growing up in the hood? Yeah. I mean, it was interesting. It was like the hood, but also like right in between where it was calm and where it was the hood. So I could walk like literally five minutes and I'd be in the place where, you know, a lot of people had gotten killed from a lot of gun violence was happening. So it was it's like right there on the edge. And we also, when we got to the States in 1992s and, and during that time, like Boston was a dangerous place. So my parents wouldn't even really let us play outside. And um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, growing up, I've had a, I've, a number of people that I've known have died from gun violence. People have gone to jail and, and I grew up in the type of city where like if you were a Latinx student in the Boston public school system, you had about a 50% chance of graduating. Did you go to public schools and uh, multicultural populations and things like that? Yeah, definitely. I'm really glad that I ended up going through the Boston public school system because it was incredibly diverse. You know, we, I, I grew up, I'm Ecuadorian, but I grew up with so many people from Dominican backgrounds, Haitian backgrounds, Vietnamese, Cambodian, Irish people, you can go on and on. And there wasn't a particular, a particular majority of anybody. It was just like this massive mix, especially in the high school that I ended up going to. I went to like regular public schools for a while and then ended up getting into a public magnet school that you had to test into for high school. It was called Boston Line Academy. And it was a great experience, you know, just basically getting to know people from such a massive, wide variety of backgrounds. What did you spend your your spare time doing when you were coming up, when you were going to school? Did you play sports? Did you do any writing, art, anything like that? So I started working pretty early. Like I, I got my first job when I was about 13. So I would definitely do the classic, like hanging out with friends. From the ages of like 11 to about 15, I practiced martial arts pretty seriously. And um, I spent a lot of time doing that. But when I wasn't doing that, you know, I um, I remember I got my first uh, job working at my local church and basically just like cleaning up different areas of the church. And after that, when I was 15, I got a job working at a nonprofit called Boston Youth Organizing Project. And that was like a really formative time where in a lot of ways, you know, I learned a lot in high school, but the um, the lessons that I learned about society, about reclaiming your power, about how strong people could be in um, when they come together in a group around a common cause, like the, these pretty pivotal moments between the ages of 15 and 18. 
who's guiding you in, at that time in your life? Like, for instance, like, you know, getting into martial arts, like, did someone inspire you to do that or, or working at the, uh, the youth project organization? I mean, a lot of it was pretty intuitive, you know, like I, when you're a kid, there's, there's a, in Boston too, you know, there were a lot of different extracurricular activities, but I had, I kind of just followed my intuition even when I was little. I remember um, I always wanted to try martial arts. I remember being like, you know, fascinated by Dragon Ball Z when I was little growing up and, and wanting to do the same thing. So I gave that a shot and gave it my time. My brother, actually, he was a part of that youth organization before I was. So he was the first one who brought me there. And, you know, I went there, I tested it out. And then I saw that I really liked it and just like fully embraced it. But a lot of it was just like, you know, me trying to figure out what is it that I really want to spend my time on. And at that point, what did you see yourself doing when you when you grew up? Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, the happinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork. And you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. At that point, you know, it's interesting. I was just talking to my wife about this. I remember in fifth grade, they asked us what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I didn't have a specific thing. All I I knew, I was like, I want to be rich. Like, I literally literally wrote, I want to be the richest man in the world. Right. Anything Uh, but being in poverty. (laughs) Yeah. I'm so done with being poor. Like I have no, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I got to figure this out. So when I was growing up, there was this pretty pivotal moment the summer after my 10th grade year. And I I don't actually don't think I've even told this story before, but I remember thinking to myself, I was like, all right, I know there are two ways to make money. I was like, either you can join a gang and sell drugs, which like a lot of my peers were doing, like even family members who had gone to jail. Like I've seen that life. I see, I've seen that you can get money, but I also got to see the other side of it. Like my, my dear cousin, like he ended up going to, to, to jail twice because of that. And it was like such a horrible weight on my family, um, his absence. And 
I also knew the violence that it came with. So I, so my thought was like, I can either sell drugs or I could go to college. Like these are the two ideas that I had of like, okay, how can, how can I get ahead in life? So I decided to go to college simply because I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to get shot. You know, it's not, it's not worth it to me to, like, <laughs> to go through all that pain or possibly end up in jail. So I remember like seriously debating that in, within myself when I was that summer after 10th grade year. So when I went back for my junior year, I just put like a lot more effort into high school and started getting like straight A's and just like making sure that I did what I needed to do to to get my applications ready. And late, later on, I started like uh, yeah, like in junior year and senior year, I started thinking a lot about possibly like getting into banking and stuff like that, because that's what I was like sort of being fed as what you can do to make money. Were you more a street kid who was doing well in school or were you more of like a nerd who was trying to avoid gang activity and, you know, getting into unnecessary trouble? It was somewhere in the middle of that. Like my nerdiness wasn't visible. Like, um, you know, like I, I looked like any other kid and on my own time, like I would feed myself information. I would read a lot of books. I would read a lot about astrophysics at the time and a lot of science fiction and whatnot. But I definitely was always kind of just like very sociable and I would have a lot of friends in a lot of different areas, you know, people who, who were into that more street life. And like, I wasn't really like in that life. Like I never, like I was always just directly adjacent to it, if that makes sense. And did you have a nickname? No, you know, honestly, I didn't get a nickname till much later in life. I remember thinking as a child, I was like, man, I really want a nickname. But um, it (laughs) never, it never sort of like I had that craving, like how come everybody has these dope nicknames and I am just Diego. And it didn't come to like much later till I was like 24. Did you speak Spanish at home and then English everywhere else? Or, or did your family pretty much adopt American culture growing up? No, no, precisely what you first said. So we would speak strictly Spanish at home. Um, my parents had this like real uphill battle trying to learn English. They're actually both phenomenal at it now. But in those like that first decade that we spent here, um, especially, I mean, even now when I go home, we, we all speak in Spanish, but I learned English first. My brother, like, so when we got here, my brother was 10 and I was four. And I picked it up really quick, obviously, because I was a child. And then my brother soon after that. And, but between my brother and I, we would speak primarily in English to each other. And, um, but between the four of us, we would all speak Spanish. And then later on, my sister was born and my sister, she also knows how to speak Spanish, but, um, her English just picked up really quickly because my brother and I were already, you know, very fluent at the time. And do you remember as a young person being proud of your parents, you know, and the fact that they didn't speak English or did you, were you embarrassed at all? Or, you know, you know how young people kind of yeah. see things through that warped lens. What was your experience with that? Honestly, the the fact that I knew that we were immigrants, it scared me. I remember feeling fear that my parents weren't able to properly communicate with other people the way my brother and I could. And I also felt fear towards like, you know, someone trying to take advantage of them or being rude or racist to them. Cause like racism was definitely like a, like a thing, you know, like you're, you're a brown man living in like white America. It's, it's like you feel it from different, different times, different points. But I definitely do feel that sense of tension of like, worrying about my parents and just hoping that like they were always protected and safe. 
Well, luckily you had your sister there who was 10 years younger, so she could translate and whatever, look out. Yeah. Yeah. My brother does a great, great job too. You know, we, yeah, we all try to help them all the time. Yeah. How did you choose uh, Wesleyan or did they choose you? A bit of both, you know, honestly. So when I was deciding that I wanted to go to college, like my junior year, so I didn't know anything about college, man. Like I'm telling you, zero. So what I did was I went to Barnes and Noble and I was looking around and I started picking up like SAT books and just like, you know, figuring out what's the process, like what do I need to do? And I ended up finding the US News and World Report best colleges of like whatever year it was, probably like 2005 back then. Um, I ended up picking up that book and I just started going down the list and looking at the universities and looking at the liberal arts colleges. And I had no conception of what a liberal arts college was or even that it was like small. I was just looking at and asking myself, what's the best college that I could get into that's closest to home? <laughs> and it was white women. <laughs> but it's a private school. I mean, did you have, were you confident that you could probably get a scholarship or how, how did you see that working out for you? Yeah. In my mind, there was just like, it was impossible to pay for anything. Even with my college applications, like my whole hustle that, that like junior and senior year was like figuring out how many vouchers I could get from all these different organizations so that I wouldn't have to pay the $75 fee to apply to the school. So I, I ended up applying to like 11 schools and I was just like, dude, it was so funny. Like that period I was hustling, trying to like, cause like some organizations would give you vouchers if you were a part of their organization. So I would like show up, like go to the first two meetings, get my three vouchers and then bounce. And then like, mm. go to another place, like get another few vouchers, bounce. And then eventually I had the 11 that I needed to apply to the schools and I was good. They gave you a scholarship, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they offered me a really good package. They gave me a big scholarship. And then, um, then I, I still had loans, but it was enough. You know, I think I, I ended up leaving school with like 30 K in loans which was a lot, but I knew that it wasn't like an obscene amount. So, I mean, it's, it's huge, you know, for like other people in other countries, it's ridiculous. But like in America, like I remember just coming across other kids who were paying like, you know, they had like $100,000 in loans, $120,000 in loans. So I felt like I got off pretty good. And then the rest of it, they paid it. Wesleyan paid it themselves. So I felt pretty fortunate. But um, there was this one moment where I remember I got into Tufts University and they offered me like a ridiculous package. Like I, I think they wanted me to pay like $200 a year to go to their school. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, man, like this is so cheap and so affordable, but I just had this strong feeling like, should I, you know, should I pay this $200 for Tufts or should I pay these $2,000 a year for Wesleyan? And I ended up just going with Wesleyan, you know, cause like Tufts is a fantastic school too. I would have done great there, but my intuition was just like, you know, I just, just go to Wesleyan. So, um, but I'm glad I did that. Did you have language for that following your intuition at the time? Or you, did no. you know that that's what you were doing? No, not at all, man. Not at all. No, no language for it whatsoever. Just, there's just that little like burning sensation where I'm like, nah, like I, I got to go in this direction. Mm -hmm. So the martial arts training, was that something where they said, Hey, I want you guys to read X, Y, and Z philosophy book or spiritual book or did you have any kind of spiritual foundation or any kind of any kind of foundation at that time? Uh, that's a good question. 
I think there were like spoken values. Like we would talk about how to like comport ourselves as martial artists and how to like not, you know, like there was, um, you know, you knew like if you were trained to fight, you're not going to just like start fights with other people. So there was like this like basic sense of values that we had there as a culture in, a, in the school. But there was never like profound spiritual exploration or development. Like it was more tournament based and that, you know, we would go to like these tournaments every, every, um, I think like once every like three or four months and like compete in sparring and in forms. And I just thought it was a great, I was having a great time. Did you continue that when you went to college? I wanted to for a little while. But when I started going to college, that's when a lot of my like internal problems started exploding. Like you hear this a lot, you know, like my, my parents, they did their best to survive, but they didn't have emotional tools. All they, all they knew was repression, right? Like if something comes up, you repress it, you tough it out and you keep going. So for me, that's all that I knew. So when I started getting into college, I felt this rather like pretty intense, like sadness and anxiety that just became stronger over time because I kept doing nothing about it. And I kept just turning away from it and running away. And that ended up just like multiplying and developing into these like really bad habits where I became pretty just addicted to the sensation of pleasure. And, you know, and, I'm, and it, it's more so like pleasure as a whole, like I would always be hanging out with friends and trying to just like surround myself with people. And then I discovered partying. And then I'm like, how late can I stay out? Like how, you know, like I would stay out partying until like eight in the morning, like so many times during a week. And all of this sort of snowballed into a lot of drug abuse and a lot of just running away from myself. And were you on a trajectory to becoming a banker at that time in your life? Yeah, I was, I was majoring in economics and I really understood it well conceptually, but in high school, I didn't develop like the real strong foundation I needed for, for, especially with like trigger, like pre-calculus, like I didn't do that great of a job in that class, which ended up like slowing down my ability to like practice the math of economics, if that makes sense. But like conceptually, like I really understood it well and was able to like handle the theories and, and manipulate them properly. But the mathematics and the calculus around that was a bit difficult. So I ended up getting a lot of like B minuses and C pluses in those courses. But then in like the other like history courses that I would take, I would do better in those. So then you graduate college. Is it fair to say you're kind of low-key addicted to drugs, maybe cocaine, a little bit of marijuana, drinking, that kind of thing? Yeah, essentially. Like that was the way that I ran away from myself. was like I was always looking for the next high, the next party, the next moment where I'm like laughing with friends or just busying myself with anything other than basically just trying to find any way that I could avoid solitude. And it really just... I, I, when I finished college, that's when it sort of got ugly because I graduated in a time where there were just very few jobs and it was a little bit after the Great Recession. It was pretty hard to find. I mean, I remember like the first job I ended up getting at a bank, it was like nine, 10 months after I had graduated. So like a lot of that time I just spent hanging out and just like partying. How were you paying your bills? So I went back home. So I, I ended up going back home and living with my mom and dad 
in Boston and I basically had no bills. And then like all the drugs and stuff, a lot of it was just given to me. But you eventually ended up in Portland. Yeah. When I, so when I went and just like started sort of hitting that rock bottom, like my, that time period in Boston. So I spent about two years there before I ended up going to Portland. And, you know, I abused my body so much that it just became so weak. Like, you know, I would smoke a little bit of weed and my heart would just be like bursting through the roof. It it just didn't feel strong. I would have pains in my heart. And then when I would do cocaine, it would be so much worse. But it got to a point where like this, it was like the summer of 2011 where I just hit rock bottom and I, you know, used a bunch of different drugs and I felt like I was dying, man. And it was so bad that, you know, I was laying on the ground. I felt like I was having a heart attack. I laid on the ground for like about two hours and just was trying to like will myself back into life. I remember feeling a mixture of like regret and also gratitude. Like I kept thinking about my parents and how much they had gone through, how much, how hard they worked. Because when you come to America, like it's not a done deal. It's like a chance, right? Like I I remember growing up in Boston, I was one of many, many Latinx families that made that trip to the United States. And like, not everybody won that lottery. Like a lot of them, they would have like kids going to jail or people in their family dying or never really sort of pulling themselves out of poverty. So I knew that my family made this, my mom and dad made this massive gamble. And I remember thinking like, man, I've wasted my life. Like, what am I doing? You know, like, how could I have let myself go so far down in the wrong direction that this is where I am right now? Do you think that they knew that you were on the decline uh, in, inside of yourself or, cause I'm sure you're, you're like, like you said, you won the lottery. So, and then you went to Wesleyan, you graduated, you were on scholarship and that's a pretty big deal. You must've yeah. been a big deal around your own neighborhood. You know, you had a sensei and you had, it sounds like you had some decent influences in your life. So how much of this, what you're describing was apparent to your parents, your brother, your sister and, and the other influences? I think it was especially apparent to my mom, but at the time she didn't know how to help me. So even with like the youth organizing, the Boston Youth Organizing Project that I was a part of, a lot of these positive influences in my life, when I knew that I was in such a dark place, I just turned away from all of them. And I only hung out with the people that basically would not care about my habits. So like, I remember at that time, like I stopped answering the calls of people who, you know, people who like I did great things with during high school or even like in college, or I would just ignore, like ignore their calls. And I would just be sort of wallowing in this like set of patterns that I was reinforcing, but also getting so sick of at the same time. But yeah, I felt like I had just wasted a massive opportunity. And when I was there that, that day, like I felt like I was dying Luckily, I didn't. I didn't die. I, I remember just thinking like, I I want a second chance. And it really felt like a moment of rebirth where when I was able to pick myself off the floor, like the first thing I did was like grab the bag of cocaine and just flush it down the toilet. And I was like, I'm done. And I stopped using hard drugs then. And I started this like basically slow walk back into a better mindset and better health. And my two main tools were radical honesty and just like forcing myself essentially to do things that were good for me, like 
you know, start eating better foods, start working out, start running and, you know, going to the gym and just do the opposite of what I was doing before. Where did you learn radical honesty? Nowhere, man. Honestly, it just, it just sort of came to me. So I, I, I remember when I was on the floor, sort of like just kind of hanging on to life there. I remember just seeing my life really clearly and just kind of feeling how much I was ignoring myself. So I had no real clear diagnosis. Like I didn't, I didn't know why I was doing what I was doing, but I knew that there was a lot of lying involved. Like that, that whole like pushing down, repressing, I knew it was, um, you know, it was me trying to run away from myself and not accept what was happening inside. And I knew that to get better, I'd have to do the opposite of that. So when I would feel mental tension in my mind after that moment, I would ask myself, why, you know, what's happening? Like, what are you feeling? Like, or when I would feel like urges to like party again, I would ask myself why. And that's when I discovered, oh, you don't want to be alone. Like, you, you know, you don't, and these like basic sort of fundamental things that uh, I slowly kind of came across, like, you know, I don't want to be alone. Like, why can I hang out with my own fear? And just really starting to get to know myself. Were you doing any journaling at this time? No, I've never been a good journaler. I would always like pick up journals a little bit and then set them down. Like I, I do love to write, of course, but a lot of the processing just happens in my mind. I honestly, I think that the journaling, like it moves a little slow. How did you make your way over to uh, Portland? One of my best friends, like he was going through a pretty similar thing as well. My oldest friend by far, we met when we were 10 years old in fourth grade. He didn't have like a big like drug problem or anything like that, but he just felt like, you know, he dropped out of high school. He was like trying to figure out his life, make something of himself. So he ended up going out to Portland because his sister was there and he ended up living on a farm and just like getting in touch with the land, like um, learning how to, how to garden, how to like grow food. And at the time I felt like that sounds like an experience that I want to try, um, especially because it's so different from just like the regular city life that I was accustomed to. And I went out there and just, I basically just lived in a farm and lived in a tent for three months. I was just sleeping outside in the woods and farming during the day. And it was just a profound, beautiful experience. And it was, it was that summer when I did my first Vipassana course. Is that the same friend who, uh, who did the Vipassana? That you inspired you? No, no, that's a different friend. So that friend actually, he ended up doing a Vipassana course, but it wasn't until I think like five, seven years later. But um, no, it was a different friend from college. He was traveling through India and he was the one who let me know about Vipassana. I always like telling people like he wrote, he wrote us an email after his first 10 day course. And it was all, it was all about love, compassion, and goodwill. And I was so shocked by it because I'd never heard him talk about these things before. He was one of your party friends? Yeah, for sure. My man, he knows how to party like the best of them. And <laughs> so I was, you know, can you imagine that? Like from the person that you used to like hang out with till eight in the morning. And then he asked you about like love, compassion and goodwill. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And at the same time that I'm like baffled by it, I, I feel my intuition burning. And it's like, dude, that's what you need. Like that's, you know whatever he got, make sure you get some of that too. And what's interesting about that is he's probably the only one who could have gotten you into that Vipassana course, you know, because you guys had done lines off of whatever tables and, yeah. you know, all of that stuff, you could relate to his experience so much more. I've never thought about that, but you're 100% right, for sure. 
if it was if he if it was somebody else who was living like a a calmer life, it, it, it might not have clicked as much. Yeah, it wouldn't even register. So okay, so he sends the email, and how long before you are on the computer looking up dates for the next Vip- local Vipassana course? Pretty promptly, man. I I remember I read the email. And I think that was right before I went to Portland and I signed up for a course, I think pretty immediately. But the courses, like they, you know, they fill up really fast. They're always full. So you have to sign like, sign up like four or five months in advance. So I ended up signing up knowing because I knew that I was going to be in that area at that time. So the first course I took was in uh, Washington State in this little, little town called Onalaska. Did you do a deep dive into what the experience was going to be like beforehand, or did you just kind of trust that it was the right thing? No, I, I did the total opposite. I had I didn't even know that it was the Buddhist teaching. Like I, I didn't know anything about it. I you know I knew nothing about meditation. There was one time where my wife, my now wife, and I we sat down to meditate for twenty minutes, and we just sat there and did nothing. We, you know, there was no technique, no, like we, we just didn't know what we were doing. So obviously there was like the practice of some sort of presence, but you know, there was no real guidance there. So that was like my only experience of meditating before I did that first 10 day course. And on a scale of one to 10, how nervous were you about going to this 10 day long, 12 hours a day, you know, meditation experience? I mean, man, that was like a, from one to 10, it'd, it'd be like a 13, man. Like I was, <laughs> like, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what to expect, but I think the, I think once I got there, that's when I became even more nervous, you know, like once I was there, <laughs> like the started, you know, cause like the, the moment you start practicing a little bit, like it, it's a process of purification. Like you're basically cleaning your mind out. It's like you're washing the dishes of your mind. And when that starts happening, like, I just get so jumpy and like all this anxiety I had buried inside of me started coming out. And I swear to you, man, the first, I would say the first six to seven days, all I could think about was how can I escape? How can I get out of here? And I literally couldn't, I, you know, this was before Uber, this was before Lyft. And I was in the middle of nowhere, Washington state. So I had gotten a ride there. And I remember I kept looking at the guy who gave me a ride and I was like, man, this guy's not leaving. Like he's, he's here, you know, like I was, I kept thinking like, how can I hitch a ride back? But when I realized that this guy is not leaving at all, I realized that I was basically just there. Like I had to just stay and finish the course. And I think at about day seven, it it really hit me that, you know, I wasn't going to be able to end this experience early. So I just started focusing and I started trying my best and putting in like, the little bit of effort that I could. And for people who don't know about Vipassana, it's also a silent retreat. So it's not like you can go up to your friend and say, hey, uh, what do you think about leaving early? Like you, you can't, you can't even look at the guy. Yeah, 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 it was totally silent. You're not supposed to be looking at anyone, not making eye contact, but I was definitely like staring daggers at this guy trying to like read his mind, figure out like, is he, you know, is he going to leave? Are you thinking about the same thing I'm thinking about? We never made eye contact, but he was there. I mean, he was an older gentleman, you know, he was like, I think in his 50s or 60s. So he knew what he was there for. So while you're there, you're doing all these hours and hours and hours of meditation. What are you thinking about for your future in terms of what you're going to do with your life? 
I didn't think too far into the future, honestly. I remember during that course, I remember I, I thought about the immediate future after the course, like how I was going to, like, you know, if my friend was going to be able to pick me up at the drop-off site where this guy was going to drop me off and get me back to the farm. I remember thinking about, probably, I was probably thinking about my first, like, meal. But honestly, the first, the, the main things that I thought about were the past. And not just the past, like, you know, I thought about this life, but I kept thinking about what happened before. Like, I remember feeling, and this is the interesting, I've, I've heard similar things from other, you know, people of color who've practiced meditation. But I, I remember the distinct feeling of the horror that my ancestors had to go through. So, like, you know, I, I come from like an indigenous background and it, I've been totally, you know, my family in the vast majority of Ecuador, we've been totally disconnected from our ind indigeneity by colonization. So, you know, I don't know like my indigenous roots and, you know, I don't carry the culture, I carry Western culture. But I remember just like feeling how much my ancestors suffered, but also figured out a way to survive. And I could feel, you know, feel the horror of, of pain, but also the the victory of surviving. And that was just like such a strong feeling. I also remember feeling a lot of like, I felt like I've done like a lot of bad things in the past and I couldn't really put a, a name on it. But I just remember feeling like, okay, there's a lot of regret inside of me. And then afterwards, you, I, well, I guess you had a breakthrough at around day seven. Can you describe what that shift was like? Yeah, there was a few shifts. Even earlier, I think around day five or six, I remember feeling pretty intensely that I've done this before. And it was a, such a strong feeling. And I ended up talking to the teacher about it. And it felt, you know, like I, I had very, I remember my spiritual understanding at the time of anything was incredibly limited. Like I, I grew up in a Catholic background and I would go to church and all of that. But then the first real sort of exposition into like the into Eastern understandings was through the Bhagavad Gita. And that's when I first started understanding about like, you know, past lives and future lives and all of that. But I just remember that distinct feeling of being like, wow, like I, I don't think this is the first time I've done this. And that was pretty sharp. Yeah. So this is in 2012. So you're about 24 years old at that time. Yeah, that's right. And then... From what I understand, you went back to organizing for a bit? For a little bit, yeah. Um, I ended up going to back to Boston after my time in Portland. I ended up working for a like nonprofit that consults other nonprofits, essentially. And I did a bit um, sort of like bringing awareness to like the public processes that were happening in this one part of Boston. And the other part, I did a bit of organizing with this prison abolition abolitionist group called Youth Against Mass Incarceration. And it was around the time when Michelle Alexander dropped her book about mass incarceration. And it was just like sending shockwaves through all these like, you know, the city environments and just realizing how there's a lot, you know, it's not just individual racism, it's systemic racism it's just, and racism is a, is a game of power. And through that power, there are like the laws that are put in place that are disproportionately affecting black and brown people. And we were a really diverse group of, of young people who, you know, from the ages of like 
18, 17 to like 25, just thinking about, I remember at the time they were going to build a few new prisons in Boston. So we were trying to figure out how to stop them from building those prisons. Did you see this as kind of part-time or temporary until you found your whatever purpose, passion, or do you see this as, hey, this is what I'm going to do for the foreseeable future? Yeah. At the moment, I I was just happy to have had some sense of like grounding in my life. You know, I felt that the healing process had really begun and I felt a lot better than I had before. I felt healthier. I had lost some weight and just like my body just felt a lot stronger. And I was happy that I had, you know, I had a job, I was making some money and I was happy to be doing this organizing work on the side that felt so nourishing because like it was it and it was the work that I was not getting paid for that was like the most important and I remember just uh, the political learning that I was doing at the time with uh, the people that I was organizing with was just like so essential even to the development of Young Pueblo and all of that which came a bit later. And meanwhile you replace partying and drugs and stuff with an hour of meditation in the morning and an hour of meditation <laughs> in the evening. At that point I hadn't started meditating daily so what I was doing was Yeah, I would go to a Vipassana course like every like three to five months. And that was like my my way of getting to know myself. It just felt like the healthiest thing that I was doing. And it also felt like I was really trying to explore like what the technique was like, because I couldn't quite understand why I felt better. Like, how was this actually making me feel better? But it was it was interesting because I've always had a lot of energy. But then I was like, okay, now I was actually putting it into, you know, into the organizing work, like into improving my relationship with my girlfriend and my now wife into being better with my mom and dad and like treating them better, treating my siblings better. But I hadn't quite like nailed down the, okay, I'm going to meditate two hours a day because it took a while. It wasn't until I moved to New York City where I was able to get that down. I think in about, it was like 2015 when I started doing two hours a day. And is that when you, around the time you took a break from the organizing to focus on your, your writing? Yeah. When I moved to New York City, I knew that I love organizing. Like I love working with groups of people to make material change happen. I know the importance of it, especially for like pushing history forward. But I also knew that I needed to deepen my own healing. Like I think that that's where that gap was. Like I knew that I was getting a lot from going to these meditation courses, but I also I wanted to be able to bring it back home. So when I got to New York City, I remember I spent about a month thinking that I was just going to, I was going to find another type, another like sort of nonprofit job, try to get my like 40K and just, you know, keep it moving. But I realized like, I remember, I think I had done my like third course and I started feeling like a new sense of creativity coming up. And I had a long talk with my wife, but my intuition was just like burning. And it was like, don't just go back to work, like try to cultivate writing. Cause like I knew that I had healed myself a little bit, but I, and I also knew that I didn't know, you know, like I, I'm learning, like I, I'm not like enlightened, nothing like that. You know, I'm figuring it all out, but I knew that there was like the miracle of healing was so profound and caught me so off guard. And this is like 20, 2014, 2015, where like the wellness world hadn't really bubbled up quite yet. So like to me, it was so new that you could heal yourself that I wanted to write more about that and let people know that they could do it too. 
Um, so I had a long talk with my wife and she basically made Young Pueblo happen. So like she ended up getting a job. She's a scientist and she got a job that was making just enough for us to have our own apartment. And she let me, you know, she basically just supported me for a few years while I, while I figured everything out. So on January 28, 2014, you had posted something on your Instagram. It was a handwritten message. It said, love is a unity, fuller when shared, perfect when given. Did you write that or was that some other person's? No, no, that, that was me. Yeah. That poem, that was one of the first poems that just came. It stayed, you know, it stayed. I, I feel like I, I really feel that. So there was no byline in that one. And that was probably like your sixth or seventh post. But then it wasn't for another year that you posted something from Young Pueblo. <laughs> so what, what happened during the time between the first one and the second one? So I've always been pretty good with um, just like researching. Like I wanted to figure out, okay, like I did a lot of writing on my own, but what was the best method to get it out there? Like, because my first idea was, okay, what if I just write everything that I'm thinking and then try to develop a manuscript and then try to give it to a publisher. But then it hit me pretty quickly that that was just not going to work because I really wanted to do it my own way. And I felt like because I hadn't read anything similar or like, you know, because I, I obviously like the ideas that I write about are not new, but sort of the poetry format, the minimalistic format, I hadn't seen too much of that before. So I, I didn't think I was going to be very successful with a publisher. What I ended up doing then, you know, that, that was the time when Instagram was getting big and I had just come back from Ecuador and I like, I love the word Pueblo because Pueblo is like, it's such a popular word in Ecuador, especially in Guayaquil where I come from, where, you know, it just means the masses of impoverished people, like the, the people basically. And when I started meditating and I kept progressing, I started realizing how young humanity was. So when I put the two together, it was like Young Pueblo. It was just a, it's like a piece of social commentary. Like a lot of people, you know, they call me Young and they think my name's Young, but it's it's not, it's just, it's just a, a pen name that I use as social commentary. But hold on one second. What was wrong with Diego Perez? Why did you need a pen name? I think I wanted to make a bit of separation for myself. Like I didn't necessarily want all the attention. Like I had learned enough from meditating that, that I know that when my, if my ego is getting bigger, then I'm moving in the opposite direction of freedom. You saw this thing getting really big then. You saw this getting to a point where you were going to get a lot of attention and you knew that you didn't want that to be personal. Yeah, I, had, I, I definitely had a feeling that was like, you should do this and that there was the possibility for it to get big. And I, I remember imagining, like hoping that it would get big and that it was actually affecting people positively. But um, even from the get-go, I was like, let me just put it under YP and see how it goes. You know, like pen names are like a common thing. And I was like, let me, it just felt right. You know, I, I felt a little strange to put it all under my name. Like I, I, you know, I have my little picture up on the Instagram, my little black and white or actually the color now. I remember even thinking back then, like I'd rather it be known under this body of work under YP for the time being, and just known as that without having my face necessarily attached to it. How many followers did you have at that time when you made that decision? 
probably like 500 man like <laughs> like very very, <laughs> very very little yeah it took a time it took a while you know and i think the big piece of that story was that i remember being really inspired by rm drake and rupee cower they were like sort of the first big instagram poets that they you know and they put out these beautiful like black and white images and they would write these amazing poems and like totally different topics than what i was writing about or wanted to write about but it gave me an archetype to work with. You know, I was like, oh, right. Like I could just put this in a picture and I could also share and just, you know, share my own message. So I, in a way, I feel like a, like a second gener a second generation Instagram poet. And I just, I started sharing, you know, I started, I, I remember in the beginning, I was actually sharing essays underneath pictures. But then after that, I was like, no, that the image actually putting a little poem or the main idea in an image actually reaches people better. So take me through your process. For instance, would you meditate and then pull out your notebook or whatever and start writing? Or how, how did you come up with these ideas and, and how much of a editing process was involved? In the beginning, it was pretty seamless. Like I would, you know, I would meditate and I, I made sure also to create a bit of separation there. Like I don't meditate to write, like I meditate to liberate myself. So I don't want like you know, the two to get convoluted. But I would, you know, after I would meditate, sometimes like things would just come up and I would just, you know, think about these ideas or a new insight would come up. And sometimes I would have whole pieces that would just like, like the one that you read. I remember that just like came to me. It wasn't like something that I had to craft. And that happened a number of times. But then there were also other times where I would, you know, have conversations with my wife, who she was also becoming an established meditator at the time. And we would ask ourselves, you know, like, what are we learning now or what's coming up and um, try to develop some sort of insight to the human condition and try to find some degree of universals that were pretty common for people across the board, even though they have different stories. And it took about a year for you to kind of get to the point where you were getting, it looked like some pretty decent traction. You were getting over a thousand likes a post. Were, how, how closely were you tracking that in, in terms of, you know, seeing what the engagement was like, or were you just kind of completely dedicated to the mission and just posting regardless? Cause you were posting about once every, you're posting probably six times a week. Yeah. My attention was definitely on it. You know, like I wanted to, cause for me, I was using Instagram as like a quick feedback loop. Like is my message getting across? Is this actually reaching people? Can it be clear? So like a lot of a lot of the pieces, um, so like I've edited my page now a number of times, but I like leaving up a lot of the really old stuff just if people are curious. Like a lot of times what I found was that I would actually write the same piece over and over in different ways, trying to like trying to just like tease out like what is the actual message that I'm trying to say? Like what is what is the real like thing that needs to get out there. And it was, it was almost like I was letting people watch me practice. <laughs> and and um, that's definitely how it was up until like 2017. And I would definitely see the numbers increase. And I think that just encouraged me to keep, to just keep sharing, to just keep doing it. And it wasn't until like, I think it was about 2017 where things got pretty big and I stopped like watching the Instagram page so much. And I stopped watching the comments so much and just, just allow it to just focus on my craft as opposed to focusing on the growth of everything. Yeah, 2017 is when it started hitting over 2,000 plus likes per post, I noticed. I'm just curious, so leading up to that point, and when you were watching it and it would go to like, say, 
a thousand likes and then the next one will get 500 likes and the next one will get 800 and then a thousand and then 600. <laughs> were you, were you tracking like, okay, when it got 500, I was talking about this. So I, I'm not going to talk about that anymore. I'm going to talk about the thing that I was talking about when it got a thousand. Were, were you that involved in? Yeah, you learn, you, know, you learn, you like, you're basically understanding marketing to a certain extent. Like it's, it's easy to write a piece that you know is just going to be really popular. But it, then it's much harder to write something that's going to be popular, but also really meaningful. And it's going to align with what you're trying to get out there with the message that I'm trying to get out there. So I was learning that whole time, just learn and also just sort of building my own stamina in terms of like writing pretty consistently. And also being okay with putting up a piece that people really like, but then also putting up a piece that I know is an important message and I just needed to get out there. How rigid were you with yourself in terms of posting every day? Were you like, hey, honey, I gotta, um, I can't go to the birthday party with you. I, gotta, I haven't written my piece for today yet. <laughs> like I would write wherever I was, you know? So it, was, it wasn't, especially in the beginning, like I would do a lot of writing in the morning, but then I felt like I was playing baseball and I was a catcher. You know, I would, when, when creativity started bubbling up and I would feel a message coming, I would just try to, I would pull out my phone and just start writing in my, in my notepad on my phone and take tons of notes and, you know, figure, you know, either the piece was clear or the piece needed some work, but I would write wherever I was and it didn't never really became an impediment, but yeah, I just, I just stayed focusing and, and kept writing no matter if, no matter if I was at my mom's house or her mother's house. You know, wherever wherever we were at the time. How did you know when a piece was ready? That's a good question. I feel like I'm still figuring that out. You know, I feel like I, <laughs> I, I, I put stuff up and, you know, I, I was actually, I just finished the manuscript for my second book and for pieces that I've already shared. And I put them, you know, obviously the book is going to have pieces that I've already shared and a bunch of new pieces. It's a mixture of both. But with the pieces that I have shared, you know, I, I remember reading them and still making these like slight little changes, little arrangements, you know, picking different synonyms and just trying to like get them really book ready. So sometimes I'll put up a piece and it's a hundred percent ready. Other times I'll put up a piece and I feel like, you know, I know it's 80% ready, but it's good enough. And I know like in the future, if it makes the book, I'll hook it up some more. Beautiful. Speaking of books, you released N-Word. And at the point, at the time of releasing inward, you were probably getting about six or 8,000 likes per post. I'm just making a note of this because you eventually, you, you pretty much went viral on Instagram. And I'm just, I want the listeners to know what that felt like, but I want to talk about it through the process of this, this book that you came out with, which was basically a compilation of your, your three years of, of dedicated writing. Was that a self-published book? Yeah. The first, so the first self-published inward and in, in the world there exists 12,000 copies of this book and um so we i self-published that one and it came out in november november 9th of 2017 and i remember i made it um through a program that amazon has and you're you're only able to buy the book through amazon and book depository but you weren't able to get copies in bookstores yet but I really wanted to make the book myself because I, I remember I, when I first first released the book, I had about 80,000 followers. And 
I just knew that I wanted to make it myself um, and not have like a publisher, like, I don't know, just tell me what to do. Cause I, I just, you know, I had no experience with it. So I just had this like strong feeling to just do it myself. So literally two weeks before I was going to release my book, a publisher reaches out and it was the publisher that I wanted to reach out to me. And they were like, you know, what are you up to? Like, um, we love to talk and um, to talk about signing you. And I told them, I was like, hey, I'm about to release my self-published book in two weeks. And basically, like, I would love to sign with you guys, but I, I need to go ahead and just release this the way I had planned. And we b- basically came up with a deal where I'm going to release my book. And I left it available for people for about eight months. And then I took it down. And then together with the publisher, we created a revised version, which is essentially the original inward, but with about like I took about like 20 pieces out and put 20 new pieces in. Yeah, because publishers don't like it when you publish pieces that are already available or that have already been public. So I was just I was just going to ask you that about how much new content that you have to add to the published version. Yeah, it had to be new, new, new enough that people who may have already bought one of the original 12,000 copies would be interested in buying it again. But um, and pu- publishing really became different at that point because like with, especially with like the huge hits that Rupi Kaur made with like Milk and Honey and her second book, The Sun and Her Flowers, like it just changed the game, you know? So if you if you have an audience, you basically have your own marketing arm that is controlled by you and that gives you a, a certain degree of like leveraging power with any publishing company that you can sign up with. I've read that you said that plagiarism on social media was not a huge deal for you, meaning uncredited posting, reposting of your work. Did you notice a lot of that in those days? Yeah, it it would happen. I mean, pretty often, honestly, it, not not too often that it was like a problem. But I remember that like there was one artist that became really famous, um, Nayira Wahid, who just writes the most amazing poetry. And, and she never put her name under things. And she still managed to be really, really successful. So I didn't worry too much about like when someone would take something or, you know, remove my name and put their logo under it. I just let it be what it was because I knew like, what can I really do? Like, am I just going to start a bunch of fights about this? Like that's, that's pointless. You know, I'm just burning away my own energy by doing that. And my audience kept becoming big enough that like they, you know, at least some group of people would know where the stuff was coming from. So I, I really wouldn't bother too much about people taking things or not and whatnot. What is it like to go viral on uh, social media? It's fine. You know, like I'm still living my regular life. Like I think that's the funny thing is like at the end of the day, like what I'm seeing on my phone is just a lot of information. But in my everyday life, like my mom and dad still treat me the same. My wife, <laughs> you know, my wife is like, she's very supportive, but she's also like not that impressed. You know, like she's, she's not like super wowed by everything. She's very happy that it's worked out and, you know, she loves what I'm doing. But nothing really changes. You're just like, because it's it's all on your phone. And when I go out in public, especially, you know, before the pandemic, like nobody would recognize me, you know, and that's something that I wanted. Like I wanted to just maintain my anonymity and live my regular life. And you may have heard me on podcasts and you may have seen like one picture of me. Like I really have such a limited amount of pictures of me <laughs> out there that that it would be hard for you to recognize me. 
and that was great, you know, like, but it, but it was also wonderful at the same time because I was able to get this book deal and I was able to get my second book deal. And now that definitely was life changing because that actually started helping me, you know, not only do my part in my relationship by bringing in money, but I was started to have the flexibility to help my parents, you know, and start like paying off their debt and just like helping them have a lot more ease and space in their life to not struggle, which has been amazing. I think people don't quite know, you know, they see me giving a lot of things away for free because I, I love that about Instagram. Instagram just allows me to give tons of poetry and pieces away for free. So like, even if you're in the, you know, another part of the world and you can't afford the book or you don't have access to it, you can get the basic gist of what I'm talking about. And that's, to me, that's like the, the key thing of what I'm doing. But for the people who do buy my book, like they've changed my family's life. You know, they, they've, especially for, for me and my brother and my sister and my parents, like they've, helped us just, you know, like I'm not rich or anything like that, but we're not struggling anymore. And that's, that's an amazing gift. And in the spectrum of uh, poets who have become celebrated through social media, the Rupi, the Rupi Coors, the RM Drakes, what would you say young Pueblo is known for bringing to that conversation? I think it's more so the like healing and wellness piece of it. Like I think the Young Pueblo work was one of the like first things that I like in the beginning, like especially 2015, like a lot of it is is me trying to process what self-love really means. You know, what, like, what is self-love? Like what's letting go? Like, is this really possible? What would that look like in, in your everyday life? What does that look like and feel like inside of the mind? So I think in terms of like illuminating these sort of more introspective concepts. I think that's what Young Pueblo really kind of brought to the to the stage. And what would you say your your mission is these days? Honestly, my mission is it's the same that it's been from the beginning. Like the reason that I wrote that I started writing under Young Pueblo was because as an activist and organizer, I know that if anyone wants to really help the world become a better place, there has to be some degree of personal and collective healing that has to happen. Like if you get to know yourself, if you really get to start unbinding and unknotting all of these patterns that have been built up in your conditioning over time, then you're going to be more creative. You're going to be more loving. You're going to understand yourself and the world better. And it's that type of mental clarity that we really need to be able to come up with more creative solutions to these old problems that hinder human peace, essentially, like collective human peace. So when I write, you know, the reason I started writing under Young Pueblo is because I know if many, many individuals heal themselves and and I know that my work is like a small piece of that because there are so many people focusing who are doing, you know, doing great work that are helped like yourself, like, you know, helping people reclaim their power, understand that they can heal themselves, sort of push this mass movement of self-healing that in turn is going to supercharge our movement for collective healing and for collective change. So I think the mission is essentially structural compassion. It's how can we take the individual compassion that we may have towards each other and scale that up to a systemic level of compassion so that large groups of people can treat each other compassionately and nations can treat each other compassionately and, and essentially develop a much more peaceful world. And how are you defining success these days? 
you know, we've come a long way from the uh, from the, the pre-college days where success was just about making a lot of money. Where, where are you now with it? Oh, man, I think success, like I really define it as time because I I get a lot of offers to do different things. But I realize that if I'm just busy all of the time, then I won't get to do what's most important to me. You know, like I still go on retreats a few times a year and I like to, you know, sit in courses, serve in courses. So I like to make sure that I have time to be able to have that aspect of personal growth be my primary component of my life. And I don't try to busy myself way, way too much. So I try to balance, you know, doing a good job with all this young Pueblo work. And at the same time, like cultivating my mind, growing and like continuing forward on the path of liberation, basically. I love that. Last question. If you could have lunch with young Diego as he's starting out as a young Pueblo, what would you advise him or consult him about this path that you now find yourself on? I would just reaffirm like meditation first and then keep writing and don't stop. Because that I think one of the one of the main things that I saw over my time as a writer, especially on Instagram, man, there there were some amazing writers in like 2015, 2016 that they, they're not around anymore. You know, they just stopped writing for whatever reason. And a lot of people with massive talent. And the only reason they're not huge right now, you know, I don't know what happened in their personal lives, of course, but a lot of people, they kind of stop right before they get really popular and big. So um, I think I would just, you know, tell myself to just keep going, that the book deals will eventually come and and all of that. And it's just a matter of putting in the effort. Yeah, we actually talked about that, you and I, before the interview started, about how People look at someone like you and they think, oh, this guy is special, but really it's just, you just didn't stop. <laughs> that's really the only difference. You just kept going. Right. That's literally, that's literally the main thing. I just didn't stop. It wasn't like there's no particular brilliance. Like I'm just a regular person. All I do is I'm very serious about meditating, but I don't necessarily have the most talent, nothing like that. There's nothing special. It's just a matter of continuity of practice. That's it. And then just kind of bringing it back around to childhood, you know, when I think back to that Iron Man uh, <laughs> toy with the with the gimpy arm that you used to play yeah. <laughs> behind the couch, <laughs> it, it reminds me of this idea of this regular person who's got this kind of armor that they use to combat crime, except your armor now is is your poetry and the crime is whatever standing in the way of systemic compassion and the peaceful world that we all want to live in. And you're just helping us all kind of break through that within our own lives and really empowering us with a perspective or perception of what we're facing on a daily basis. And that, and that obviously comes through your own personal experience. And one thing you've said before in, a, in another interview that I was researching is that you don't take ownership of the words that you post. You say that it comes through you. And I really love that as opposed to coming from you. And I think that's something that when people do the work and that they invest the time in, in cultivating that inner state of, of um, 
compassion and peace that it's, it's a pretty common thread that you see that things come through you as opposed to yeah. you kind of yeah. having to control it or, or, or manufacture it or work for it. It's just, you just have to make yourself available for it. So just want to acknowledge you for making yourself available for, for the contribution that you're now able to give to the world and for using all of your life experiences in a positive way. And, uh, and I think, well, I know that you're absolutely leaving the world in a better place. So I just want to Thank you for that. And uh, thank you again for coming on and, and being so generous about sharing your story um, from the very beginning. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Light. This has been an amazing conversation. And thank you for taking me so clearly through every stage. I, I, I haven't quite broken things down like that um, in any podcast. So I appreciate that. Absolutely, man. That's what we do at, at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to my interview with Diego Perez, a.k.a. Young Pueblo. You can find his books, Inward, and his new book, Clarity and Connection, pretty much anywhere books are sold. There's also an audiobook version of Inward, which is narrated by the man himself. If you want to hear more stories like Diego's, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and check out the archive. I've got so many other interviews with amazing people who've had to overcome all kinds of really interesting and fascinating challenges in order to start their movement. And what I keep finding conversation after conversation is that the person's greatest obstacle, the one that they wrestled with the most and that kept them up all night long, always ends up playing either a feature or a guest starring role in helping them find their calling. If you like what you hear, please rate and review the podcast. It really does help other people discover these inspirational stories. And as always, you can find everything that Diego and I discussed in the show notes, as well as a transcript of our entire interview on my website, which is lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. That's light spelled L-I-G-H-T, Watkins, W-A-T-K-I-N-S dot com slash tunnel, T-U-N-N-E-L. While you're there, make sure you sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email, which is where you get short and sweet daily inspirational messages directly from me each morning in your inbox. And if you have any feedback or suggestions about who you think we should bring onto the podcast or how the podcast can be better, feel free to text me directly. I'm going to give you my phone number. You ready? All right. 323 059166. You can text me a suggestion. You can just text me to say hi. I'm probably not going to have enough time to do a lot of back and forth, but I do try to respond to everything that comes in to let you know that I got it. So I appreciate that. And thanks again for listening to this podcast. I know you have so many options and I really do appreciate your, your listenership. So Thanks for that, and I'll see you next week with another fascinating conversation from the end of the tunnel. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com. 
and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.